Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. Just had a funny thought. It's a sad reality if mine is the only face you get to see all week. If that's, if that's the case for you, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. One thing I've been thinking about is, is Lent season actually started on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. And I, I was pretty keen to do something for Lent or to come up with something. I didn't in time. But I think going through the Lent season, we're, we're going to set, set aside some time for a Lenten prayer or, or something similar to that. Lent is a really rich time to reflect and to repent. And I think something we can commit to do this Lent is, as we're going through Acts, as we're looking at the coming of the Holy Spirit into the church and everything that happened because of that, let's, let's also pray for revitalization in the church, especially in the Canadian church. You know, there are so many things, so many ways in which our nation is ill. And, and we need a strong church, and we need a booming church, and we need God's Spirit at work in the church in this country. So, so through your Lenten season, please, please pray for, for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our church, in all churches across the nation. So we're going to be closing out the first chapter of Acts this morning. This is a passage, we'll be looking at it, I'll get to it yet. Um, where did I put my clicker? There it is. That... Uh, very seldom gets preached on. Uh, you may have never heard a sermon on this passage before, and I would not be surprised, but uh, we'll get to that in a bit. If you remember from last time, things don't start out so well for the disciples in Acts. In their face-to-face conversation with Jesus, this is the last, you know, face-to-face conversa- conversation before he ascends. They ask Jesus, last thing they say to him, so now are you finally going to get rid of the Romans, and are you finally going to restore Israel as an independent kingdom? The disciples asked for a political victory, for political favor. They were still looking forward to being earthly princes. They still didn't quite understand. Jesus responded to them and said, it isn't for them to know what God's plans are for the empires and for the nations of the world. But actually, Jesus has something much better in mind for them. The disciples are going to spread the good news of Jesus from Jerusalem to the province of Judea and Samaria to the very end of the earth. And that's when Jesus was taken up in a cloud of the glory of God and he was brought to his throne. And that's where we left the disciples. I mean, afterwards, they see the two guys. The two guys are like, what are you looking at? Like, it's a great passage. And it's time now for the disciples to learn how to hurry up and wait. Jesus told them, all he said is in a few days, that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's all they know. What we're going to see today is that Peter does come up with something for them to do in the meantime while they wait. Let's start there in Acts 1 verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath stay journey away. I've got a whole bunch of rabbit trails to get into right now. This is, this is going to be fun for me. So actually, I mean, these directions, they, they kind of inform us of where Jesus' ascension happened. 
He ascended from the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And remember, this is really key, the angels told the disciples that Jesus is going to return the same way that he ascended. And here's a cool thing. More than 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah wrote about the last days. He wrote about the second coming, the final judgment. And he prophesied that in the last days, Jerusalem would be surrounded by her enemies. She would be pushed to the utter brink of destruction. But that ultimately in the 11th hour, God will come and fight for Israel and will save Jerusalem from all of her enemies. And look how Zechariah describes it. This is just part of the passage from Zechariah 14. Zechariah says, On that day, the last day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall, be move, shall move northward and the other half southward. I learned in Israel that this passage has perplexed the rabbis for centuries. And this is something we take for granted. The rabbis ask, why does Zechariah say that God has feet? God is spirit. But of course, for us, it's not nearly so complicated. We know, just as the angel said, that Jesus will return exactly the same way he left. And now we can, knowing that, we can look back at Zechariah's prophecy, and Zechariah can now even tell us retroactively what he's going to do when he gets back. Jesus is going to descend from heaven, and he's going to stand again on the Mount of Olives, just like he left. And when he comes again, he's going to split the whole mountain in half, and he's going to create a path for Israel to escape just before the armies of heaven descend. And now we're starting to hit a whole bunch of notes from all over the scriptures. Because in that moment, all Israel, desperate, are going to look on Jesus. They are going to know he is the Messiah and they will all be saved. Just as Paul promised, all Israel would be saved. And in that moment, Jesus is going to keep the promise that he made to the high priest Caiaphas. Maybe you remember this from Matthew. Jesus told the high priest, you are not going to see me again. Israel will not see me again until they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when Israel is in utter desperation and the Messiah King returns to rescue her, that will be Israel's cry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then history is brought to completion. That's how wonderfully interconnected the Bible truly is. And it's a beautiful promise. God promises that he will come for Israel in her last moment. And his chosen people who did not recognize the Messiah sent for them will be saved by him. Even though they will not know to ask for him, he will come for them. For those of you who've uh, been to Jerusalem, here's a picture of the Mount of Olives. This is taken more or less from where the old city of, of Jerusalem stands. It's a really, really busy picture. Yes, those are all tour buses. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, if, you, if you're a tourist around there, you're in good company. Uh, this is the Kidron Valley here. Um, we've talked about this before with the Mount of Olives. The side of the mountain is brown because those are all tombs. Um, they're mostly Jewish tombs. The Jews recognize Zechariah 14. They know that God is going to come and judge the nations from this mountain, so they want a front row seat. So if you're an important rabbi, you get buried on the Mount of, on the Mount of Olives. Uh, there's a beautiful church right there that, that has a little corner of the Garden of Gethsemane. You can go and visit that, and it's kept by monks. Uh, there's a beautiful Orthodox church up on the hill there. Um, by this minaret, minaret, there's a mosque right here. Uh, Rachel and I, we stayed in a hotel right there, so it was a really cool place to stay. You're right in the thick of all of it. Uh, and when, when Mark was here with me, we decided late in the evening, it was probably eight or nine, that we were going to just walk to the top of the Mount of Olives because it must look really cool to look down on the city from the mountain. And it doesn't look too bad, but we had to stop and make base camp about two or three times as we <laughs> sat around with our aching feet. So it, it takes a little while to wind your way up there. I show you this picture because I just told you what the scripture promise is going to, is going to happen. And, and you know, when I look at it, I see this dip in the hill. And then I start to imagine that's where it's going to be split in two so that Israel can escape. And it's just, it's a totally amazing thought. That's the promise. So anyway, that's one of my top five rabbit trails. I just had to go on it. We'll, we'll come back to the text now. All the way back to the first verse, 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. I find it funny that Luke feels like he needs to tell Theophilus like, that uh, the mountain is near Jerusalem. Anybody who's been to Jerusalem knows, oh, the Mount of Olives, it's in the modern city now. It's part of the city. Uh, but Theophilus, I guess, has never been there. So Luke is even giving him these geographic details. But here's, a, here's another question. What is a Sabbath day journey? Does anyone have any guesses? Yeah, how do you know this? Okay. <laughs> Anybody else have any guesses if you didn't hear Shelby? <laughs> Who just totally ruined it for me? No, it's <laughs> Yeah, well, you're right. That's actually more detail than I was going to get into, sort of. Um, the Sabbath day journey... It's, it's the result of a problem which the Torah scribes kind of have to work out. And the question is, how far can you travel on the Sabbath without your travel being considered work? Right? That's sort of the operative question. Don't work on the Sabbath? Well, how far can I travel? The problem with this all is, is that Moses is pretty clear what the limits are. I'm going to, Exodus 16, 29. Think about this. Moses said, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And what does that sound like? You stay home. COVID. COVID. Sounds like COVID. Who said that? <laughs> yeah, how far are we allowed to tra travel on the Sabbath according to the Torah? Not very far. So confession time. Who here has ever walked anywhere on a Saturday afternoon? Just show of hands. If your hand is not up, you are lying, and we'll have to talk about that. We'd all make terrible ancient Hebrews. 
This is a problem. It's not workable. I mean, people, the priests had to walk to the temple. You know, people had to travel on the Sabbath. And if you want to be absolutely hard-nosed about what Moses says here, then Friday night to Saturday night, you're not allowed to even leave your home. So the scholars of Jesus' time and before Jesus' time, they came up with a few technicalities so that they would kind of deal with this. Shelby referred to a passage in the book of Numbers. Moses describes the pasture land which Israel is supposed to allot around their cities. It works out to about three-quarter of a mile in all directions. The scribes concluded that this must be a permissible travel distance. This is a part of the abode. And so the way it worked out is in the end, three-quarter mile became more or less a Sabbath day journey. Just, you know, rule, 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 you come up with a number and then you enforce the number because that's easier. Now, of course, sometimes on a Sabbath, something comes up, you're going to have to travel more than three-quarter of a mile. So the Pharisees, they came up with a great solution to this problem. They developed another loophole. I mean, they were professional loophole developers, so... They set special posts along the major roads at three-quarter mile intervals. And when you stopped at one of these posts, you would be served a meal. And they decided that if you ate a meal, it would be considered your abode. Because, you know, you're, ha- you're having a Sabbath meal in your abode. And so you could travel a three-quarter mile, have phospa, travel a three-quarter mile, have phospa, travel a three-quarter mile, have phospa. Sounds like a beautiful way to travel, you <laughs> know? Anyway, that was rabbit trail number two. Now you know about the Sabbath day journey. So they're just saying they went about three-quarters of a mile. That's the short answer, I guess. Okay, verse 13. It's not all going to be like this. We're going to start marching from here on. Yeah. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, John the... John the James, the son of Alphaeus, sorry, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. We don't get a lot of lists of the disciples, but here Luke is giving us another one. It's identical to the list he provides in the Gospel of Luke, except, of course, minus Judas Iscariot. The last time we saw this list, it was way back in Matthew 10. That was back in 2019. And the only difference here between this list and Matthew's list is that Matthew has Thaddeus instead of Judas, the son of James. And it's nothing really to get alarmed or confused about because it was actually really common for Jewish men at the time to have Gentile names. A lot of Jewish men would have their Hebrew name, but they would also have a Greek or a Roman name. And Thaddeus is like a Greco-Romanized name. And since there's already a Judas in the group, it's pretty natural that he probably went by his Gentile name, Thaddeus. So Thaddeus, Judas, the son of James, probably the same guy. Everybody had a Gentile nickname, more or less, and that's how they managed, because everybody seems to have the same names. The lot of them return to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room. You know, you always wonder, is this the same upper room where they had the Passover supper? And we have no idea. Could be. It's nice to think that, but we actually don't know. Because remember, upper rooms were guest rooms. And we're going to find out this was a pretty big guest room. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, 
together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So how did the disciples start their wait? They commit themselves totally to prayer, and there's nothing surprising about this because they want to understand what's going on. They don't understand what's going on. They've been through a lot this past little while, and so they stop, they all gather, and they pray. But they are not praying alone. They're with the women, and we know what that means. Jesus' female disciples, who we discussed a lot at the end of Matthew, they're there. And this is also really cool. Jesus' mother Mary is there, and his brothers, he had four brothers, they're also there as well. And it's amazing to think about that because if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, you find out early in Mark, there's this amazing event where Mary and Jesus' family, they travel all the way to Capernaum and they're urging Jesus to come home because they think he's gone crazy. Right? They've come a long way. Mary and Jesus' brothers are now followers of Jesus. They've begun to understand the Gospel. They're there praying with them. In fact, Paul tells us that Jesus' brother James also met the resurrected Christ, met his brother resurrected. It, it gets personal, right? And we've talked about Jesus' wider group of disciples before. There's the 12, and then there's a bigger group. And he had this wider group of men and women who traveled with him all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's why they're in the city in Jerusalem. So without reading ahead, don't cheat. How big do you think, like when you imagine it, how big do you imagine that wider group of disciples was? Any guesses? 100? Anybody else? Like when you imagined it, when, you, when there were other followers, how many did you think there were? Maybe 20? 72. 100, okay. Anyway. <laughs> we're getting specific. In... In those days, Peter, yeah, pretty good. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And they fit in an upper room of a house. So it's, it's a, I don't know what kind of a building they were in. I don't have any idea, really. So it's 120. Jesus' larger group of disciples was about 10 times bigger than his core group of disciples. And I don't know that I ever imagined it that way. I probably imagined about 30, 40 people who were in that wider group. So Peter stands up to talk. He's clearly the leader. He's been a leader for a long time, and he, he remains that way without Jesus there. And they're all there waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit, but they have a lingering problem, which Peter feels that now it's time to tackle this problem. Verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. So let's unpack this. First thing, Peter is saying that King David, a thousand years before any of this is happening, the, the king of Iron Age Israel, King David wrote about Judas's betrayal, and he did that through the Holy Spirit. In a few verses, Peter is actually going to quote from a couple of David's psalms and tell us exactly what he means, how he wound up here. 
And this is actually really cool because we can see now that through Jesus' teaching, Peter already understands some of the ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. He can look at Judas's betrayal and go, oh yeah, King David wrote about this through the Spirit. There's another element here which you may not really catch. If the Holy Spirit is speaking about Judas through the mouth of David, David is a prophet. God is speaking through him. In Jewish tradition, David was always regarded as both a king and a prophet. And for whatever reason in the Christian church, we tend not to look at him that way. We always, he's King David. But biblically, he's also a prophet. He prophesies. And of course, you notice Peter explains that Judas betrayed Jesus. He turned him over to his enemies to fulfill the scripture. And it's, we get into kind of a chicken and the egg thing here, right? Because we're going to see in a few verses that what Peter isn't saying is that Judas was forced to betray Jesus and he had no choice in the matter because, boy, we better do it by the manual. Judas, you've got to go betray him. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is going to tell us that Judas chose his way. And if we remember back to the Last Supper, Jesus even accuses him directly. Judas has no excuse. He could have repented at that moment, and he did not. And God spoke through David that the Messiah would be betrayed by one of his companions. And we're going to come all the way back around to this and and finish that thought. But first, we have a really, really uncomfortable side note that we need to deal with. I don't know about your version of the Bible, but you might have brackets here because now, now Luke, the narrator, is interjecting again. 18. Now this man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. This is another of those verses nobody has on their living room wall, you know. (laughs) And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Brackets, immediately after this, Peter is talking again. <laughs> so it's a, it's a big distraction. Why? Why does Luke decide to give us all these gory details? Why does he decide to do it here, right in the middle of Peter's speech? Yeah, we'll, we'll, get, into, uh, we'll get into some of that. Luke has just noticed, talking about Judas, Peter started talking about Judas, that... Um, He's never told Theophilus what happened to Judas. And if you go back to the Gospel of Luke, there's no description of what happens to Judas. So Luke is realizing, hey, Theophilus, for this to make sense to you, I better tell you that Judas is dead. And so he he puts this interjection in here so that Theophilus will understand what he's talking about. Luke actually visited Jerusalem in, in 57 A.D., And as part of his interviews and his research, he must have collected these details that we find here. And so he volunteers them to to Theophilus. First, just like Shelby was asking, Luke says that Judas acquired a field. And we remember from Matthew that it was actually the priests who bought the field with Judas' own money. I think what's going on here is Luke is just simply summarizing. He's trying to keep it simple. Because the priests, if they're buying it with Judas's money and they don't want their own blood money back, they probably bought it in Judas's name. And so it, it is, in effect, very similar to Judas just going and buying the field. And Luke doesn't see a problem just simplifying that matter. 
because how much of a digression does he need to uh, get into here in the middle of, of Peter's speech? But he, here's the real interesting thing. How did Matthew say that Judas died? Anyone remember? Yeah, yeah, he hung himself. Now, some people, and, and even some of the sermons I was listening to, or pastors I was listening to, they think that the description of Judas's death here and the description in Matthew that there's a contradiction here that we just can't work out. And my response to that is, we are blessed to live in a time and a place that it's not common knowledge how this all works. I did all of the horrible research so that you don't have to. This is a thing. It's totally believable that if Judas hanged himself and his body was left unattended, that ultimately it would fall to the ground and burst. And that's all I'm going to say about it. If it's, if it's too gruesome, you can ask me about it in the hot seat and everybody else can flee, okay? But, but that's for people living in this time and place where bodies were often left exposed in execution, they would know this stuff. There's nothing surprising about it. And I was thinking through this, even with Rachel, I mean, this is our dinner table talk, oh my goodness, <laughs> that when did Judas kill himself? It was right at the beginning of Passover. Why was everyone so urgently trying to have Jesus dead before Passover started? Because you can't handle a body without being ritually unclean. So if you're wondering how Judas's body could be sitting there in a field for a long enough time for this to happen, it's because it's the Passover. Nobody can touch him. And it's a tragic story. It's a sad story. And that's why Luke includes the detail. To us, it's so gruesome. Don't, don't be distracted by that. The point is it's sad. The point is it's sad. And as he concludes, the place gained such a reputation that people no longer called it the potter's field. It's now called the field of blood. So there we stop, and then we try to forget this because we're going right back to Peter's speech. So I'm going to read verse 16 again. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let, us take, let another take his office. Both of these quotations, Peter is pulling from Psalms of David, written by David. And as Peter said, he understands that when David wrote these words, it was the Holy Spirit writing about J Judas through David a thousand years earlier. The first quotation is from Psalm 69, verse 25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And this means exactly what it sounds. In this psalm, David is asking God to make the dwelling place of his enemies a desolation. Make the, the abode of my enemies a wasteland, is what David is asking God. And that's just like the description of the field of blood we just received. They name it, kind of, they give it this desolate name, the whole culture does. The second quotation is from Psalm 109, let another take his office. In this case, in this psalm, David is praying that his enemy would die and then be replaced. David gets pretty harsh. He lived in a harsh, harsh environment, and so that's, that's his prayer. 
So Peter, looking at these verses, he reasons then that Judas is this enemy and Judas needs to be replaced. They need to get back to that whole number. They need the 12 disciples. They need the 12 disciples to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and represent Israel fulfilling her destiny. But it's interesting. That's me. Peter never brings that up. He never explains that. He just says, we need, we need to replace him. So, take that as you will. It's interesting to note, you know, Jesus also recognized Judas as the enemy from David's Psalms. If you flip to John chapter 13, what's happening in John chapter 13 is Jesus has just humbled himself. He's gone and he's washed the feet of his disciples, including Judas. And afterward, they have a conversation. And at one point, he says that the scripture will be fulfilled. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9. I have that up here, so you don't have to get blisters on your fingers. This is what Jesus quotes after washing the feet. He says, he said, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He doesn't quote the first part of the verse, but if you knew the psalm, you would know the whole verse, right? Even my close friend in whom I trusted has lifted his heel against me. He's being kind of clever. Perhaps the first part of the verse would be too obvious. So he quotes the second part of the verse to the disciples. Psalm 41 is another psalm of David. And Jesus clearly identifies that one of you, my friend I trust, will betray me. He says, Judas, you are the enemy from David's psalms. So Peter too, trained by Jesus, he recognizes these patterns. And here's the conclusion he comes to. He says, so one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Judas needs to be replaced, and so here Peter is setting the criteria. What does it take to be one of the twelve? First thing. To become the twelfth disciple, you have to have been with Jesus from his baptism to his ascension. Essentially from the very start to the finish. You have to have been a witness of the entire ministry. And secondly, this last statement, it works as a qualification as well. If anyone is going to be a witness of the resurrection, they need to also be among the 500 people that Jesus appeared to after he was resurrected. So you kind of have two criteria operating here. Has to have been a witness to Jesus' earthly ministry start to finish and has to have seen the risen Jesus. And so they, they work that out. I don't know if they just stuck with the 120 people who were in the room, but they come up with a short list of two, two men. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. So first, we got another guy with two names. You now know how this works. It's just like Judas or Thaddeus above, right? Justice would be Joseph's Gentile name. That's a Roman name. So he also had a Roman name. Maybe it helped him with trade or whatever. So uh, it's a little bit like my best friend growing up was Korean. I always knew him as Robert. His name was Chanchin. But he took an English name because otherwise everybody would get it wrong all the time. So it's probably the same dynamic. 
So they have the short list. They have the two candidates. They have the two nominees. And now the disciples are in the full swing of their AGM. It is going full bore at this point. And now here's where they start the election process, right? Except it's a little different from the way we do it. First things first, they pray, verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They're all seeking the will of God, but they, are, they specifically ask God to show them who can take on the apostleship which Judas gave up. It was Judas's, and he forsaked it. Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Judas went to a place of his own choosing. God did predict Judas's betrayal in the scripture, but God's prediction did not determine the outcome. God simply was aware outside of time that Judas would tragically choose evil and selfishness over his love for Jesus. And if you start to think then, well, then if they knew this was going to happen, why didn't Jesus try to stop Judas? Think about the Last Supper. I mean, could Jesus have been any more obvious with confronting Judas with what, with what was about to happen? And in John's Gospel, Jesus just says, hey, you've made up your mind, just go and do it. God doesn't force his will on us. God will not, out of mercy, change the mind of Judas. God desires a relationship with us. And if God is going to have a relationship with us, we need to be able to choose. Judas is free. He was free to choose. He went to a place of his own choosing. And so Jesus told him, if you want to betray me, you go and do it. You are free to do so. Judas chose his place. He chose isolation. Judas chose the full effect of sin. He chose an existence where reconciliation with God is impossible. Because he stands as probably the clearest example in all history of the unforgivable sin. Remember, Jesus said that all sin may be forgiven. Jesus even says he doesn't care what anybody says about him. But he says that there is one sin that will not be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And when you unpack that in Matthew, you see that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when you recognize Jesus for exactly who he is, for exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing in him, and knowing who he is, you reject him. Judas knew better than almost anyone in all history the identity of Jesus. He saw every miracle. He received every private teaching. And knowing who Jesus was, Judas betrayed him. He could have no doubt that Jesus was the Messiah and he still sold them cheap. And so the scripture on this point is clear. Those who know Jesus in all of his glory and knowing the risen Lord and still rejecting him, that cannot be forgiven. 
When we preached on this passage in Matthew, I, I tried to assure everybody, if you're worried that you've ever sinned the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Because anybody who knows the Lord fully and then rejects him has no remorse. Right? If you have, if you're, if you've ever been concerned about it, you have not done it. This is full well knowing who Jesus is and what he's all about and not wanting it. And none of us have ever been there. So at the judgment, Judas will have his chosen place. He has chosen not to have a relationship with God, knowing who God is. And so he will be condemned to hell. That is the absence of the relationship with God. And that's the whole dynamic being unpacked here. And Peter says it gently. He chose his place. He chose. He was free. You know, the thing is, Peter is not replacing Judas because he's dead. James, the brother of John, you know, one of the three who were closest to Jesus, in about 14 years after this, he's going to be executed. And they're not going to feel any need to replace him. He's going to remain as one of the twelve. So Judas is not replaced because he's dead. He's replaced because he's a betrayer. He's replaced, just as Peter said, he abandoned the apostleship, which was his. So now in the meeting, John makes a motion that all nominations cease. And James, of course, seconds. He always seconds. And they put it to a vote. No, they don't do any of that. (laughs) And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They don't vote. They draw straws. Matthias gets the good straw and he becomes one of the 12 apostles of Jesus for all history. There's something a little bit weird about this. You know, when you read through the Old Testament, casting lots is a really common way that they try to figure out the will of God. They would do it all the time. They do it through the Torah. When, I think they do it in, in Jonah's story too. When they're trying to figure out who's God mad at, they draw lots and yeah, Jonah loses, right? <laughs> so that's a common way of figuring out God's will in the Old Testament. But drawing lots or casting lots only appears one other place in the New Testament. So 500 bonus points for anyone. Where does it appear in the New Testament? Okay, so you each get 250. (laughs) Right. The only other place we see casting lots in the New Testament is when they're gambling for Jesus' clothes. It's not even a good comparison because they're not trying to figure out the will of God. It's not like, God, who inherits the robe of Jesus? They're just going, eh, you know, they're they're gambling for his stuff. After this passage... Casting lots does not appear again in the Bible. And I don't know why. I mean, maybe because they received the Holy Spirit, casting lots, like doing things by chance to figure out God's will, it's no longer considered necessary because the Spirit can speak to us. But we're never told that. I just, I just don't know. So it's already kind of a weird passage, right? And that's just it. As I sat down with this passage... And I thought, nobody ever preaches on these verses. There's not going to be a lot to talk about. But the more I thought about it, and the more I talked to Joe about it, the more questions about this whole thing I have. I don't know if if you have questions. We can talk about that afterward a little bit. But here's some of the things that went through my mind. Is casting lots still a good idea? Is that something we should be doing? Does the Holy Spirit replace these sorts of ways of discerning God's will? Some of the Amish 
still choose their preachers by casting lots. One of the elders of the Orthodox Church in, in the early 1900s was chosen by lot. So some churches still, still do this. They still cast lots. But then I thought a little more. Why didn't Jesus settle this over the 40 days he was with them? Did Judas never come up? Did, did rounding out the 12, taking it from 11 to 12, finding someone, did that never come up? Why did Jesus make them wait to receive the Holy Spirit in the first place? Wouldn't have this been a lot easier if they had the Holy Spirit? I've got a lot of questions. I've got more questions than that. I wish I could put somebody else up on the hot seat afterward and be like, explain this to me, right? But Luke doesn't give us any commentary. He doesn't see a need. He just moves on. And you know what? We never hear about Matthias again. This is it. All we know about Matthias is that he was chosen. All of this is because Judas decided to go to his own place. He had a place of glory given to him. Can you imagine the eternal esteem in the kingdom that the apostles have? He was chosen by Jesus to fulfill, be a part of the fulfillment of the destiny of Israel. And instead, he chose petty money and the favor of evil men. He chose. And he has become the most reviled man in all human history. Judas chose sin. And his sin forced Peter to deal with a broken situation. Predicted or not, it's not supposed to be like this. Sin is brokenness. Sin is outside of the will of God. The whole thing is sad. It's sad in David's writing, and it's sad as the history unfolded. It's sad that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and after that betrayal, that man realized he had nothing left to live for. The story is a tragedy. And now the eleven are left here waiting on the Holy Spirit and they, they're here to pick up the pieces which have been left by sin. And I'm going to go out, I'm going to admit it, okay? Matthias, nothing against him. But any way you slice it, he is not an ideal candidate. He have, may have been around since Jesus' baptism, but do you remember when we were studying through Matthew how often Jesus would say one thing to the crowds and then he would only ever explain it to the twelve? Matthias never received that. He was never that close to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with him, and I believe that he's chosen by God. I'm not undermining that, but he's not a perfect fit. Judas was. He was there. He was a disciple of Jesus. He heard every teaching. He saw every miracle. The church hasn't even been born yet, and it's already struggling with the ramifications of sin, which make all of church life complicated. Sin forces us to deal with broken relationships and broken situations in the church all of the time. Sin forces us, as the church, to spend a lot of time in the muck. This situation is not the ideal situation. I don't know personally if they should have cast lots. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And you know what? It's funny because churches like that all of the time. 
when we preach the gospel and we read the scriptures, this should be so clear and obvious. It should be so easy. You know, love each other and tell people Jesus is alive. That's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? But sin gets mixed up in our lives and it gets mixed up in our community and then everything starts to get complicated. The church should always be an inspiration. The church should always work. We all have the Holy Spirit. This should always work right. It should be glory after glory. It should be victory after victory. This should be the most exciting place on earth, bar none. Based on everything I say here from the pulpit, this has to be the most exciting place on earth, right? Riley, do you, do you mind if I pick on you for a second? Okay, you don't mind? Arms are up. So you've become a follower of Jesus. You have become an, a part of this unstoppable kingdom of God, right? When you came to the AGM a few weeks back, was that the greatest experience of your life? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> He's giving me this. <laughs> it's not that there was anything wrong with it. By all accounts, the AGM, it went pretty well, right? We just, we clipped through it. The reality is, that the day-to-day -day of our faith of the church, it doesn't always resemble the glory of our calling. But that doesn't mean that glory isn't there. It should be victory to victory. This should be the most exciting thing on earth. And then we get caught up in some conflict or some committee, and suddenly we're wringing each other's necks over some issue, and everything kind of, it starts to get, it starts to get hard, Right? Lots of us have been there. Week to week, we preach the risen Lord and that death is dead and that our hope is perfect, and it is. And in the same week, I will hear stories about broken relationships. I'll hear about family members who don't even talk to each other anymore. I'll hear about some innocent person, some person even close to us being abused. And we'll constantly be dealing with the fallout of old grudges, things people just can't get over. And I get something that I'm going to coin. It's a term I'm going to coin. It's called spiritual whiplash, right? I go from declaring the everlasting glory of God in the wounded lamb, and then right away I'm worried about if, if the stream is working right or if the microphones are all set up appropriately, and I go, bam, it's whiplash. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me that I miss the glory for the day-to-day? -day? If only it weren't like that, Right? And that must be exactly what Peter is thinking at this very moment. Peter didn't know exactly how long he was going to be waiting. And so he took some initiative. He filled the vacancy left with the disciples. But I think if he knew he was exactly one page away from Pentecost, one page away from the coming of the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have worried And look at your own heart. What makes you anxious today? What makes you anxious in the church in your life? If we all knew suddenly this moment that Jesus is coming back next Tuesday, would any of it matter anymore? Pentecost came. Everything was turned on its head. The whole church was set on fire. Suddenly this wasn't such a big deal. And for us, Jesus is coming. Could be next Tuesday. I'm not predicting. I'm not predicting. Disclaimer. Disclaimer. 
Yeah, be a heck of a youth group for sure. (laughs) And that means that there is a moment coming when all of it makes sense. There is a coming day when we will see clearly that every small effort we made in Jesus' name, it actually counted for something. It, It amounted to something. It all mattered. It was all victory after victory. We were always the conquering church. We're just so easily distracted. And when we see where this all ends up, the struggles and distractions, they're not going to mean a thing anymore. Everything that we've struggled with will pale in the light of Jesus' glory. In the power that sin has over our memories, over our imaginations, it is going to be crushed. In the meantime, we are covered by grace. God sees us stumbling through this thing and doing our very best, and God can see that in every act of faith that is victory after victory after victory, we sometimes wind up troubled and discouraged, and we are under God's grace because he understands it. He understands it's not always easy. And so until then, we deal with the hardships, we deal with the fallout of sin, we deal with human nature all of the time. We don't know how long, but we must as a church Seek to live in a way faithful to our calling and faithful to the commands of Jesus. That's how we win those victories, even when we're in the muck. And the amazing component of this is that God partners with us every day. He partners with us in our everyday lives, in the mundane parts of our life. We were just singing this morning, open up our eyes to see you in the ordinary. There is coming one day when Jesus is going to open our eyes and we'll see that even in our ordinary lives, they were covered with grace, they were covered with his love, and the kingdom was conquering. And we're just so easily distracted. You know, the enemy puts a veil over our eyes. We miss it. One day we will not miss it. Judas went his own way. And we choose Jesus and we choose Jesus' kingdom. We go through hardship together. We deal with the consequences of sin with love together. We worship together. We celebrate together. We mourn and we bury our dead and we celebrate births. And we pray for the weak while we rejoice in our fellowship. We live life together, struggles and all. And we do this reciting in our hearts Paul's words in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now and then, it happens all the time, somebody comes to me and we talk about how something really good is coming. I've had a conversation with a number of you that we feel like Hague Mennonite Church is just on the cusp of something really good. That it's happening and we're getting there. It's both end. And it's the truth. And the trick is that it's not always easy to see just how much God is glorified here when we're distracted by the everyday. But faithfully together, we keep turning that page. All of a sudden, we're going to land on Pentecost. You know, God is going to do something amazing. Whatever you're praying for, whatever your spirit is longing for, whatever you know we need, whatever your family needs, whatever you need, it is coming. The Holy Spirit is faithful. God has not abandoned us to be on our own. 
And just like we're going to cover next time, we're going to turn the page. Pentecost is coming. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. And we pray that you would give us spiritual eyes. We pray in your Holy Spirit, which we know is dwelling in all of us, that you would give us eyes to see you in the ordinary. That in the day-to-day, when we get caught up in the strife, in the struggle, and in the muck, that you would show us that everyday victory, that victory-to-victory of your conquering church. That we would be encouraged and built up. God, we pray that you would give us courage and energy for the journey. We thank you for the joy that we share here. We thank you for this community that you've called us each into this room by name. And God, we pray that your church would be brought to life, that your Holy Spirit would be the breath of life in us, that you would give us energy and wisdom beyond our understanding that your spirit, like on Pentecost, would go forth. Thank you, God, for the privilege it is to be ministers of your gospel. Thank you for the privilege it is to be a part of your church. And we pray, God, that you would meet us now in the deepest needs of our hearts and that you would build us up as a people of love, that we would be here for each other and that we would be on this journey together in grace just as you shower us with grace. And for the goodness of this thing, for the goodness of this thing, for the great days and the boring days and everything in between, we give you all the honor and all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website hagemennonitechurch.com. Until the next time.